Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph, Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogues were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thanks, Lexi. God, we pray that you would open up our ears, our minds, our hearts to receive your word this morning. That your spirit would be upon us and would transform us by your word. Uh, that you would not let anything that is of me and not of you come out of my mouth this morning. God, that we would look more and more like your son Jesus, more and more like your people, because of your work and your word at work in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you didn't catch on, Lexi was reading from Luke chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there are some at these tables here. If you just kind of like that old school feel of paper in your hands. Otherwise, you can download an app on your phone. Many of you already have that. And you can swipe with your finger to Luke 4. And that was from verses 14 through 30. We are continuing going through the entire book of Luke. Uh, and so we spent our Advent season leading up to Christmas looking at the birth of Jesus and the announcement and the arrival of him as king. And then what we're doing now is we're taking each week to go through a snapshot of each chapter of Luke. And so there is going to be a lot of things that we miss. And I want to kind of just back up a little bit and give us a little context of what has transpired so far in Luke. And particularly in between where Wade was preaching from Luke chapter 3 of Jesus' baptism to where we find ourselves now in Luke chapter four. And so I wanna give us a snapshot of that. But before we do that, I have an important question for you all because uh, I just wanna know how to steer this next two hours. I'm just kidding. This next 30 minutes, Lord willing. I wanna know which, which Jesus do you wanna hear about right now? That's a serious question I wanna hear. What, what Jesus do you guys want this morning? You can get the, the feathery-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who just cuddles lambs all day long. 
You can get the Jesus who goes in with a whip and is like cracking whips at tables and turning them over. Which Jesus do you want, Ethan? Jesus the Messiah? Good Sunday school answer, bro. Nicely done. Good job. It's a great answer. Anyone else? You want know, the, the baby infant Jesus? It's cute and cuddly Jesus and probably never cried for his bottle at all. Or do you want like the grown Jesus on a cross who was beaten? Connor? Cute and cuddly Jesus? <laughs> I did this to myself. Shouldn't have asked a question with kids in here. Grown Jesus? Teacher Jesus? Jesus on the cross because he died for us? Yeah. There's lots of, different, lots of different angles we can look at Jesus, right? And depending on what maybe stage of life we're in, maybe our, our circumstances that we're going through, we might want to look at a different part of Jesus and go, like, that's the Jesus I want right now. Or maybe... This Jesus over here makes us a little uncomfortable. I don't like the Jesus that goes in flipping tables over and he's angry, cracking whips. That sounds scary. I like the, the cuddling the lamb Jesus that everyone paints the portraits of, right? But, but if we are going in expecting to get this particular Jesus, this particular savior, Messiah, king, ruler over all the earth, and we're expecting him to look one certain way, we might very well miss the real Jesus. And that's what we find happening here in Luke 4. The same Jesus, the same God of all creation who made himself a small, helpless, fragile baby, dependent on others to care for him, is the same God who grew 33 years as a man on this earth, and then caused all kinds of problems with the leaders of the day. And was, was ostracized, was spit on, was beaten, and was murdered. The same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. And was loving and caring for people, fed the hungry, healed the sick, is the same Jesus who did go cracking whips in the temple. Who did call people out when they thought that they were so righteous and didn't need him. The same Jesus who was born is the same Jesus who died. And the same Jesus who died is the same Jesus who rose again. The same Jesus who died for our sins out of this great depth of God's love is the same Jesus who is going to come again one day with wrath and vengeance. I know that's not the side of Jesus we want to talk about often, is it? And in fact, we'll even see today that out of the text we read this morning, there was a point where Jesus didn't talk about that part. Uh, but it was very much true. And so let, let's get to all that, but first, a little walkthrough of Luke. So what we see in the beginning of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, is this telling of two family stories. And actually, they're, they're related somewhat, so they're extended family to each other. So it's really one family. And actually, they came out of the people of Israel. And so you could look at it that way and go, this is the family of God, the family of Israel. It's continuing the story. And what we know that has happened before that, all those first uh, books of the Bible that we sang in that song of the Old Testament, is that God's people were looking forward, they were looking forward 
to this king who would come and rescue them. You see, they had turned away from God so many times. They had completely rejected God as their king and asked for a human king. And that human king failed them. And so did the next one and the next one and the next one. And they found themselves in captivity over and over again to different people. And so you had the prophets, the, the, the books that we sing about, like Isaiah, you know, Jeremiah. Those kinds of guys would come and they would say, this is what God's saying to us. This is how we need to turn back to God. This is how much we need him. But they would also at times give you this hope to hold on to. They'd say, one day, there's someone who's going to come and restore this kingdom of God's people. But restore it to what it was meant to be. Not just our own kingdom where we're strong and we're doing good and we're healthy. But a kingdom that is blessing the other nations around us bringing all into God's kingdom. He's going to come. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to release the prisoner from bondage. He's going to do all these amazing things. And so God's people were looking forward to this. And then there's this period of 400 years where it's just silent. There's no prophet standing up and reminding God's people what's going to happen anymore. And so for 400 years, God's people are, they're enslaved, they're being oppressed by another nation, and they're just wondering, what's going on? Where is God? Do any of you feel like that in life right now? Like it's just quiet. What's going on? God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up right now? And so Luke is this beautiful story where we, we turn the page from the Old Testament and we start to see God has a plan to show up. It's always been his plan. And so he sends one more prophet, a man by the name of John. He's born just a few months earlier than Jesus himself. They were cousins. He, he comes and he starts preparing the way, Luke says, for the kingdom of God. He's telling people, you need to turn away from all these other things you're trusting in to save you because they will fail you just as they always have. Turn away from trusting yourself. Turn away from trusting other kingdoms, other people. Turn away from trusting in your relationships to make you satisfied. Turn away from trusting in power and wealth and all those things. They're fine, but they'll fail you at some point. And turn back to God. And so John came preaching repentance. That means to turn away from a lie and to turn to the truth. And at the same time, we get this story that in that family... There's this baby born named Jesus. And the name Jesus actually means Savior. And that Jesus is born and his family is told, his parents are told, this is the one. This is going to be the rescuer of the world. Not only of God's people, but again, to be a blessing to all the nations and invite them in. And so you see the story go back and forth between the announcement of these two births, and then you jump ahead about 30 years, and we get to where Wade was in the text last week in Luke 3, and John's out there, he's preaching to people, he's, he's grown man now, and he's baptizing people in the water, so he's dunking them in the water as a representation, a symbol to show you need to be cleaned. You need to be cleaned from all your guilt, from all your shame, from all your fear, from all your rebellion against God, and washed by God's goodness. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, I, I need this too. And John's like, hold on, that doesn't make sense because you don't have sin. You haven't rebelled against God. 
Like we're reading this and we're going, if this is who we were just told this is supposed to be, then he doesn't need to be cleansed of anything. He's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. But we see that Jesus is choosing, he's choosing to take on flesh and humanity. And not only does he choose to identify with humanity and all of their brokenness, but he comes to walk through everything humans walked through and to do it the way we were supposed to do. And so as soon as, this is the part that we missed, after Jesus gets baptized, as soon as that happens and you see this beautiful picture of the skies open up, you see this spirit come on Jesus in the form of a dove and you hear this voice of the father saying, this is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him. By the way, this is, Luke's very purposeful with this imagery. It's supposed to remind us at the very beginning of creation that the spirit hovered over the waters, kind of like a dove. It's the same language being used there. That the, the word of God, which is Jesus, was spoken forth. And the father was creating. And so now for the first time since things were broken and messed up in the world, we're seeing the three triune persons of God together on the earth again. God has come down to be with us. So after that, Jesus gets up, and so the spirits come on him, and then we're told the spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tested by the enemy, by the one who accuses. So you might know the name Satan. That name means accuser. Remember we read in Psalm 103 this morning that God will not accuse us forever because of his great love for us. Satan, the enemy, he is the one who accuses. He is the one who fills your head with shame and lies about who you are, who makes you feel like you aren't worthy of God's love. And so Jesus goes to be tested by him. And in the power of the spirit, he completely overcomes. He, he, fulfills, he fulfills a true faith and obedience to God the Father as he goes 40 days in the wilderness, just like Israel went 40 years in the wilderness, but they fail to trust God in that time. Jesus fulfills it. Now here's why I'm, I'm doing this. I want us to look at this very boring section in between those two things. Jesus being baptized in the spirit, Jesus being tested in the wilderness, led out there by the spirit. In between there, in Luke 3, Verses 23 through 37. I'm not going to read all this to you. This is the very boring parts of the Bible called genealogies. This is telling us who Jesus was. Jesus, so it was thought, was the son of Joseph. So it was thought because Joseph wasn't his bio daddy. He was like adopted by him. We know that Jesus was miraculously born to Mary in the power of the Spirit. But it goes through... Son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli? Who was the son of Mathat? Who was the son of, and it goes through this long, long list until you get to the end. The son of Adam, the son of what? Who? God. The son of God. There's something really interesting and key that we see throughout the book of Luke that I want to give us just a, a foreshadowing of right now. Jesus, we're told, is the son of God, but you know the name that Jesus loves to call himself all the time? The son of man. The son of man. 
choosing to identify himself with humanity, to be the true humanity, what it was supposed to be. But you see through this genealogy that that's what we were all supposed to be. The first human was also called son of God. He's restoring us back to that place that we are intended to be. And this is what I don't want us to miss. Don't give up the son of man, Jesus, for the son of God, Jesus, because he's fully both. The son of God come to be also the son of man to restore us to also be sons and daughters of God. I could do like the next two hours on that genealogy if we want, but we're gonna skip ahead. So we see that the spirit's on Jesus at his baptism, spirit leads him into the wilderness. We see that the spirit is empowering him to be the true son of man, son of God, that we were all called to be. And then we see in verse 14, Jesus returns to Galilee and what? Those of you who have your Bibles open, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee. So that's where he came from. He's gone out into the wilderness. He's come back. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You see a theme going on? Spirit as baptism, Spirit leads him to the wilderness. He returns back to the city in the power of the Spirit. Why is that important? What do you guys think? Cannon or Jonas? Whose kids are those? Jonas. The Spirit of God, what? Yeah, he comes in the Spirit of God, you said, to, to give to other people. Is that what you said, Jonas? All right, cool. I like that. What else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think we'll see later in Luke that that's true. He has the Spirit with him. That's important. He is the Spirit. He is one with the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I know this is tricky, but there are three people of God, one God. Don't try to do the math. Um, but, they, but Jesus is completely unified with the Spirit as the Son of God. The way humanity was intended to be. And so he's coming now in the power of the Spirit. The power, this is why I don't want us to miss. The power of the Spirit is what gives Jesus the ability to be the true, perfect human. And so to live out the thing that we're supposed to be, the thing we were created to be, the reason we fail at that is by rejecting the spirit. Jesus has come in the power of the spirit. And so then this interesting thing happens. He goes to the synagogue. Now this is every good Jewish person did this, okay, on the Sabbath. This is a Saturday. It's like us coming here on a Sunday morning. Saturday was a day of rest and a day of worship. They gathered in the synagogue. That's basically the, the place of worship. So they went to church. And they get there. And it was a custom for the, the person leading in the synagogue. He would either get up and read from the scroll himself. Or if there was like, especially if there was a special visitor, he could invite that visitor up. Or anyone he chose to come and read. The way I invited Lexi to come up and read from the scripture this morning. Good job, by the way. And so Jesus is like their hometown boy. He, they know him. They're like, hey, Jesus is back. I don't, I don't know what he was doing out in the desert for 40 days. It stinks a little bit, but, you know, cool. Joseph's boy, like we love him. Jesus, you want to come up and read? 
And so he gets up there, and he opens up, and he finds the place in Isaiah. And so what would happen is, the, traditionally, is they would tell you this is where you're going to read, right? So he was handed a scroll of Isaiah, but he, the scripture tells us, he found the part in Isaiah where it read this. And what Jesus reads is going to be the thesis of who he is and why he came. You know what I mean by thesis, the thesis statement? Kids, do you guys have to write reports for school right now? Like, a, What's your thesis statement, Ethan? What is that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the main topic that you're going to write about, right? So my youngest son, Liam, he's six, he's in first grade. He came home, he had to do a report on uh, just somebody who's done an extraordinary thing in our history. And so he chose Martin Luther King Jr. It might have been some prompting. I don't know for mom. I'm not sure. But somehow he came up with Martin Luther King Jr. And so he had to write, and he's like trying to figure out what he's going to write. And I said, well, what are you supposed to do? Like what your teachers say? I have to write about someone who did an extraordinary thing in our history. And I said, so did Martin Luther King Jr. do something extraordinary? Yes. What was it? And so his thesis statement is, Martin Luther King Jr. did an extraordinary thing. I think he, he ended up fleshing that out later with some help from mom and dad. But that was a thesis. That was saying, this is what this paper is going to be about. I'm going to tell you why Martin Luther King did an extraordinary thing. I'm going to tell you what that extraordinary thing was. I'm going to tell you why it mattered to us, right? His paper wasn't that good. But he's working on it. Oh, it was the one sentence. That was the whole paper. Okay. We'll see, we'll see what grade he gets back on that. So we'll, we'll work on that a little bit. But yeah, first paper ever. Pretty good job, right? Jesus comes and he reads, and, and this is, think of this as like his thesis. This is what he's come to do. And so this is what he reads in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Right? Remember this theme? We've heard this. At his baptism in the wilderness, as he walks into Galilee, and now he's reading it from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That word is actually also where we get the word Messiah. When Ethan said earlier, I want Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah means anointed one. It means one that God has chosen and set apart and called for a special task, specifically to be a blessing to others. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops mid-sentence, closes the scroll, sets it down, and walks back to his seat. If we were to turn to Isaiah, I want you to do that right now, Isaiah 61. This is where Jesus is reading from. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We're going to find a piece in there that Jesus leaves out. And essentially what he does is like a mic drop after this. And it says everyone was just like, their eyes glued to him. They're like, what? What just happened? Let's find out why. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah was a prophet who in the first like 40 chapters of Isaiah, he's warning God's people. Hey, the... The people of Israel have been taken over. At this time, God's people were split in two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. 
people of, of Israel have been taken over. Judah, if you aren't careful, you too will be enslaved by another nation. Make sure you're following God, right? And then after that, the next half of Isaiah is basically him saying, taking the outlook of like, that's already happened. You too have also been taken over, but don't worry, there's gonna be one to come and rescue you. And so Isaiah kind of goes, slips in and out of using this like first third person. And, and there are moments where he's speaking from the viewpoint of this rescuer coming. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 61 here. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. I want you to look for the similarities and differences of what Jesus read. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you notice the part that Jesus left off? What was it? The day of vengeance for the Lord. Why do you think Jesus would leave that part out? Yeah. Did everybody hear that? And he said that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were looking for this Messiah to come and rescue them from oppression of the Romans, to overthrow, basically, the Roman government, and that they would rule right alongside this king, this Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. So they would rule right alongside this king, this rescuer, and he would basically come in and, like, kick Caesar out and go, like, no, no, no this is our town now, Right? And Jesus came with something a little different, didn't he? So this, this phrase, to uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, the way the Israelites would have seen this was God is coming to bring favor, which is another word for grace, to us, and vengeance on all of our enemies. These two things went hand in hand for them. Like, you, you can't come and free us, God, without doing something about the people who put us in prison, right? You can't come and help us without doing something about the people who are just pushing us down. And so these two things were two sides of the same coin for them. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. There's another thing that these phrases would have brought to mind for the people of God also. Uh, the year of the Lord's favor also would have meant to the people of Israel, it would have reminded them of something called the year of Jubilee. Have you guys heard of the year of Jubilee before? So the year of Jubilee for God's people, God had basically instructed them, at every 50th year on your calendar, I want you to do something radical to display my grace and my love and to basically try to, try to fix what you've broken for 49 years. I want you to release anybody who's a prisoner. I want you to let any slave go free. I want you to forgive any debt that anyone has against you. I don't know about you guys, but I'd be taking out some big loans in year 49, all right? So I want you just to let all that go. 
I don't care how much they owe you. In the 50th year is a year of Jubilee. Forgive everything. So this, this radical view of forgiveness, Jesus is coming saying, this is what I'm bringing to you now. To all the earth. And they would have been like, yes, this is awesome. And then, where's the rest of that though, Jesus? Like, aren't you also bringing the day of vengeance? The day of vengeance though wasn't just this reckoning for Israel's oppressors. The day of vengeance was this reckoning for all of God's enemies. It's the day that we get throughout scripture, the day where God finally returns to reclaim all that is his and anybody who is not on God's side is in big, big trouble. That's the day they were thinking of. But we're on God's side, right? We're good. We're, we're team God. We're good. And so what we see in Luke 4 is people are pretty amazed at Jesus. And in fact, it seems like they're, they're kind of eating up what he's saying. They like it. It says that he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down. Mic drop. Eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fastened on him. And he starts to say to them, today, what I just read is happening because I'm here. That's what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then, listen to this, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Good response, right? Like they're amazed. There's something that Jesus has just said that has just blown them away, and it's good news to them. Because when he says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, I mean, the Israelites, in comparison with the Roman Empire, they're pretty poor. When he says that he's sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free, that's them. They're oppressed by the Roman government. So like, yes, this is good. This is awesome. But they're amazed at his gracious words because there's nothing in there about what he's going to do to their enemies. And then, and I think that probably is what maybe set them on this trail. Like, hold on a second. Can this be? Like, I think they're liking the words of Jesus and the promise of Jesus, but they're not necessarily liking Jesus. Because this is what they say next. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, they're not just asking a simple, harmless question there. Like, hey, we, we, we know you. Like, this is Joseph's son. Okay, cool. Hey, tell us, tell us what else. We'll follow you. That's not what they're doing. They're going, hold on. I watched you grow up. You're, you're the son of that poor carpenter guy. Like, you came from nothing. What do you, who do you think you are? Walking in here saying that you're the rescuer that God sent, you're going to overthrow Rome? Like, where do you get that power? Where do you get that authority? Where do you get that right? Isn't this Joseph's son? And he knows. He knows that this is what they're thinking. And so he starts to, he starts to basically tell them two stories. He gives them two stories of times in the Old Testament and, and times before him that they would have been well aware of where God came to heal and rescue, but it was outside of the people of Israel. 
He comes and he heals and rescues Gentiles. That's anyone who wasn't Jewish, that Jewish people really had a strong dislike for. They thought they were better than them because they were God's chosen people, right? And Jesus is reminding them, no, 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 listen. When God comes to heal and set free, he goes to those who need it the most. When he did this, he gets two stories and he goes, he didn't do this for really any of the Israelites except for like one or two, but he did this for the people who were really broken. And Jesus says this later on too, when he's being challenged by religious leaders. He says, he's, he's basically, he's being questioned, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors and all these terrible people, Jesus? And he goes, that the physician, the healer, the doctor doesn't come for those who are well. He comes for those who are sick. Jesus is saying in those very words from Isaiah, I've come for the people who need me the most. For the poor, for the oppressed. Now, we live, my wife and I and our kids, we live over by Metro Center area. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Valley too much or Metro Center, we do come across a lot of poor, a lot of homeless, a lot of afflicted, a lot of oppressed Uh, We do work with some boys from a group home. They're in foster care in a group home. Um, We do work with refugees. Like, we're around poor and oppressed a lot. So if I read this correctly, I think what I need to do is, like, get rid of most of my money and live more the way they live because this is who Jesus came for, right? Is that right? Like, Jesus has come for the poor. These are the people Jesus is saying, I am for. I'm here to heal, to set free, to bring freedom and redemption to. Can you identify with that category? Do do we often put ourselves in that place? Is Jesus saying, let me ask it this way, who are the poor? What do you guys think? People without, so you said three things, the unrighteous, people without money, or those who aren't Christians yet, could be any or maybe all of those, I don't know. What else, any other thoughts? Who are the poor? How do we define that? There's a, there's a federal poverty line, is it everyone below that? Are those only the people Jesus has come for? Lacking in some way? Yeah, like what, what are some examples? Yeah, lacking in protection or maybe position in some way in society. That's a good way to put that.
Yeah, yeah. So, so someone who recognizes no matter what they do have, that they are still lacking something. It's still not enough to fully satisfy and fulfill them. They, they could have tons of money, tons of possessions. They could have tons of relationships even. They could have tons of status and power. But they are recognizing that there's something still missing, something deficient within them. And Jesus starts to, starts to unfold this for us throughout Luke. We're going to see when we get to Luke 6, in Jesus' famous Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he means by that, God's favor on those who recognize that they are lacking. God's grace on those who know they have need. We said in our confession, we know that we were formed out of the dust and we're nothing without God's breath breathed into us. We know that we're like a beautiful flower in a field. Sure, it's beautiful, but we can't stand against a strong rushing wind, right? We recognize that we are in need of something, someone much greater and stronger than us. Because we're going to see throughout Luke 2 that Jesus hangs out with a lot of different types of people. He hangs out with the poor, like monetarily poor, ain't got no money. But also, he calls Matthew the tax collector. Matthew, who's getting rich off of his own people, who's basically going in and taking, scraping more off of the taxes that belong to Caesar from his own neighbors and friends and family so that he can line his own pockets. So he's got money. But Jesus came for him too because he recognizes even though he has money, he's poor. He's poor relationally. He's pushed everyone away. And his rebellion, his greed has pushed himself away from God. This is who Jesus has come for. And when we start talking about, and listen, I, I've heard even some of us, let's get real right now, Miss Eel. I've heard even some of us say, man, we talk about the poor way too much. Like, if we can't identify with these people, this is who Jesus came for. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, find a way to put yourself there. If we can't identify with that, if that makes us really uncomfortable, then we have not acknowledged our own poverty in spirit. We have not acknowledged our own need and desperation for a rescuer to come and save us. And Jesus comes preaching, good news, I have come for those who recognize they need me. You know who he has no time for, though? All the people who think they got it all figured out and don't need Jesus at all. The religious leaders who scoff at him. That's who Jesus has no time for. And there is a day when he is coming again. Revelation 19. Let me go there real quick. This is the part of Jesus we don't often read about. John writes in Revelation 19, and I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He is talking about the day Jesus comes back again at the end of the story. That final symbol, that down arrow. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Listen to this. He is, this is like out of a horror movie. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That winepress is an imagery of blood. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming with the day of vengeance of the Lord one day. And he is striking down all those who have pledged allegiance to another kingdom other than his own because he is the king. But why does Jesus leave that part out? Why does he, when he's standing in the synagogue in Luke 4, leave that part out? Because he's a patient God. Because he's waiting for that day. This is what it says in 2 Peter 3. It says in verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. This is important. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's talking about the day that Jesus will return. He's not slow. He's not just taking his time, but instead... He is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's a day Jesus is coming with the vengeance of the Lord to finish Isaiah. But right now, Jesus is saying, I have come with the year of the Lord's favor. I have come preaching good news. You are welcome, those who know that you need me. Come, and I'm gonna wait patiently. I'm gonna hold off for the rest of that part of Isaiah so that more of you will come and acknowledge your need for me. And he's saying, I'm giving you time, but it won't be forever. I'm calling you, come to me. And so Jesus, Jesus preaches this good news for three years to all who would listen to him. And eventually, he grows quiet as he approaches the cross. And the wine press of God's judgment, the wrath and the blood is poured out on him first. The day of the vengeance of the Lord comes to Jesus first. He takes it on so that you don't have to. That's the good news Jesus is offering to all of us. Will you recognize your poverty? Will you recognize your need? Will you come to him? And when you do, know this. Just as the spirit of the Lord was on Jesus to proclaim good news and freedom to the poverty and to the afflicted and the oppressed, Jesus, after he rises out of the grave, he then puts his Holy Spirit on us, church. And the spirit of the Lord is now on us to do the same thing, that we get to also proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We get to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the oppressed. We're not the ones who do all that and set them free, but we get to proclaim it just as Jesus did. That's our call and that's our invitation. And it's my prayer that you would come to Jesus in that poverty recognize how he has filled you and be sent out in his power. So let's pray for that now. Jesus.
We thank you for your words of truth, of life, of love, of justice. Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears and sees and has come down to us and is coming again one day. That you care for your broken world and you care for these broken people. And you call us to be healed and forgiven and redeemed. Spirit, come upon us. Transform us that we would walk in newness of life, that we too would look like that true humanity that Jesus has come to be. We are in desperate need of that. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.